As we do rise this morning to read our sermon text from Acts chapter 1, so grab your Bible, I do hope you have one and you can uh, turn to the second half of Acts 1 as we continue a series through this wonderful book that we began last Lord's Day, and if you don't have a Bible uh, today, you can turn to the Cherubic Bible that should be in front of you and you'll find our text on page 909. After the first 11 verses for our attention last week, we want to finish out the chapter today with verses 12 through 26. So let me read that text for us and then pray for our time and we'll begin together. So listen now as God speaks to you through his word. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the woman Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120. And they said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldamon, that is, the field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no place to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the Baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, so which one of these two you have chosen? to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we, we do thank you that by your mercy and grace you continue to speak to us, you continue to provide for us in your Son, Jesus Christ, and ask even this day that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds, that you might illuminate our understanding, that you might convict our souls, that you might build us up in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Someone told me once that it's not sentences that change lives, it's, or I'm sorry, it is sentences that change lives, not books. And you can think about this probably in your own life and find some agreement with that sentiment. Uh, perhaps you might read a, a rather large tome, a rather big volume of truth, and 
as the years pass, as perhaps even just the months go on, uh, you realize all you remember from all of those pages is just a simple sentence or two. Or maybe uh, you watch a movie and it's only a select scene or two that stick with you. You might listen to a majestic piece of music and in reality it's only a tiny part of one small movement that sticks with you as the notes go up and down. And one of the sentences that has stuck with me throughout years of pastoral ministry is one I heard uh, nearly 15 years ago. I was sitting down with a brother in ministry. I had just been uh, called as a missions pastor at a nearby congregation, and I was interviewing, essentially, uh, this pastor because he had been doing that work for decades and decades with incredible faithfulness and fruitfulness. And somewhere there near the end of our conversation, he took out a piece of paper from his backpack, and he scribbled across the top this horizontal line, and then he took the pen and sketched two simple vertical lines to create three sections there on the paper. And he said, every pastor's ministry falls into three parts. He said, years 20 to 40, years of preparation. Years 40 to 60, years of harvest. And year 60 to whenever you die, years of of mentoring the next generation. And it was a surprising thing because I never thought about ministerial life in that way. And and not least of which is I was just a 24-year-old pastor at the time. And I thought to myself, quite contrary to the way I had thought about future ministry, that I had 16 more years of preparation before seemingly a harvest might come from my work for Jesus Christ. And I would imagine that if you reflect long enough and deep enough, perhaps you don't even have to reflect long or deeply Uh, You you know what it means to find yourself in a season of of preparation for how long has the Lord maybe been preparing you? For what has the Lord been preparing you? And I ask you that because we come to our text today here in the back half of Acts chapter 1, and it's nothing more than a text of of preparation, uh, of what it means that God is preparing His people for what's getting ready to come, the seismic event in redemptive history. Because if you were with us last week, what we saw in the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 1, it was primarily Christ's promise and then Christ's program, that he had promised the Holy Spirit was soon to fall, and he gave this program, this great commission to his people about what their work was to be as he was ascending into heaven. If you just glance back up to verse 8, don't you see the promise in the program there in one great sentence? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And so what we said last week was, is that as Christ has ascended into heaven, We've heard his final marching orders to his church is that he expects and he demands that his people be a witnessing community, uh, bearing witness, telling the truth, testifying to the gospel as it's found in Jesus Christ. But we we said it's not only true in Acts chapter 1 that this group, what we see in our text, was a merry band of about 120 people, Uh, was to be a, a witnessing community, but here they were also a waiting community. And whereas they were waiting on the fall of the Lord's Spirit there at Pentecost, the poured out third person of the Trinity from the risen, exalted Jesus Christ, we too, aren't we, not just to be a witnessing community or a waiting community, waiting for that blessed appearing, that glorious hope that's found when Jesus Christ returns. And so what we want to see today is what it looked like 
for this early church to wait. What was their work as they were waiting? Because the simple theme that you want to see from our text today in this prayer meeting that we get to glance in on is the theme of prepared for Pentecost. That's what's happening in our passage. And we're going to see uh, this, this group prepared in two significant ways, two simple ways. They're prepared through prayer and they're prepared with leaders. That's what it means for Christ to continue to prepare his people in Acts chapter 1. So let's notice now what it means to be prepared through prayer. You see verse 12. It tells us that they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Now, children, you might know that at this time the rabbis had very specific laws related to what it would mean to keep the Sabbath. And they had a very specific number of steps you were allowed to take from one destination to another on the Sabbath, a Sabbath journey from point A to point B. And that was 1,100 steps, which is roughly like three-quarters of a mile. You might say a 15-minute walk is what happened here. The Lord Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven. You might remember these angels are saying to them, what are you still doing staring up into heaven? He's going to return in the exact same way he left you. And so after that has happened, the Lord has ascended out of their sight, rising on the clouds to glory, to be seated at his Father's right hand. They take a 15-minute walk down from the mount there of olives, and they come, the next verse tells us, to this upper room. We don't know exactly where that upper room was. It's possible, I guess, it could have been that same upper room where Jesus celebrated the final Passover with his disciples on the night when he was betrayed. It seems more likely in the sweep of Acts that this is actually an upper room in John Mark's house because we'll see later on in Acts chapter 12 that at Mark's house there, John Mark's house, it kind of functioned almost as a home base for their ministry. And we see then, don't you, in in verse 13 and 14, all the people packed in to this upper room. We're going to soon find out it numbers in total, 120. But what Luke brings to our mind in these first few verses is you've got the 11 remaining apostles, Women that supported Jesus' ministry, Jesus' mother Mary, and Jesus' brothers are there. And the first thing thus you need to see about their preparation, about their waiting, is that they are waiting obediently. Uh, Because you might remember from last week, if you were with us, that the command was to wait in Jerusalem. For not many days from now, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And what do they do? They take the 15-minute walk back to Jerusalem, and they're waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, you, You can trust that when... True, a sovereign and supernatural revival, awakening falls upon a people. It always comes upon people who are walking in that ordinary obedience to God's command. And their waiting involved the work, notice, of prayer. You see verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. So there's something here you want to see about the prayer life of these early saints in the early church, the first of which is they were unified in prayer. You see that they were, they were praying together. You know, you know, I hope that you have had the chance, no matter your age, young or old, uh, to, to pray with other Christians, to attend a, a prayer meeting, uh, because you might know that there, there seems to be something, doesn't there, of this significant spiritual mystery of God's Holy Spirit working through the prayer of His people that, that knits hearts together, that, that binds souls together in a way seemingly nothing else can do. Uh, you, you can be sure that if a church is 
unfamiliar with what it means to pray in unity, you can trust that they're not going to be familiar with pastures of peace that belong to Jesus Christ. I think it's right for us to expect that insofar as we are growing in our devotion to, to pray together, to be, to be unified in prayer, that the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, would be our ordinary experience in the Christian life. And it's not just that they were unified in prayer. We're also told in verse 14 that they were urgent in prayer. I was talking with some people earlier this week about what in 19th century church history studies we talk about as the New York Prayer Revival of 1857 to 1858. And it began when this Dutch Reformed congregation in Lower Manhattan, uh, they had called a man named Je- uh, Jeremiah Lanfear to be this evangelist. What they wanted him to do was specifically come to the congregation and reach this noticeable number, this increasing number of immigrants that were coming into the area. And so he was called to the church. He began to set about his work as an evangelist. And for several weeks in a row, he felt like he wasn't just getting through. He couldn't find, find purchase in his ministry. So he decided to switch strategies. He said, maybe what I should do is call together a prayer meeting at noon once a week. You know, the, the businessmen are on their lunch hour, and maybe they'll come and, and pray for the work of the gospel in this area. And so the first prayer meeting came, and, and six people showed up. And they prayed diligently, with unity and, and urgency. And within six weeks, there was a prayer meeting every day at 12 o'clock. Hundreds of people praying throughout the week, and a genuine revival breaking out there in the New York City area, as God's Spirit began to awaken people to their need for, for Jesus Christ, and it all came through urgency, unity in prayer. Because the language, if you notice again, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. It's a language of patience and persistence. It's why someone during that New York prayer revival, an observer who has left an account for us, said that patience and perseverance are never so thoroughly united Christian graces as when they're connected in prayer. That when God's people are praying, there tends to be this holy unity of patience and perseverance. So you want to know, don't you? I mean, what does that prayer meeting look like? If you've been to a prayer meeting at our church, normally what happens is there's a screen up here and we put together points of prayer and we spend those 60 minutes just bouncing back and forth between all of these different points that are requests that we think are vital to our church's life, even other churches in the area, God's gospel going to the ends of the earth. But what were these apostles? You know, what were they, what were they praying for? Oh, we can't be sure, can we? Yet it's likely, isn't it, in and on balance with the previous section, that they're praying for the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, Perhaps they're also praying for their hearts to be ready for the coming of the Holy Spirit. You know, students, don't forget for these disciples, they were surprised that Jesus Christ was put to death the way he was put to death. They were certainly shocked, weren't they, that three days later, he rose again from the dead. So as Jesus says, the Spirit's getting ready to be poured out from heaven on high. Well, what's that going to look like? Are we going to miss it? Let's be ready for the Holy Spirit to come. And so it's helpful to note, isn't it, that that Christ's promise, it gives us confidence in prayer. It gives us reason to pray. We don't want to fall into the trap that Satan can even tempt Christians unto. Is that because God has promised you something, you need not pray for it. Well, God is faithful, isn't he, to his promises. They're all yes and amen in Jesus Christ. 
why would you pray for something that he's promised? I mean, it's going to come to pass anyway, isn't it? Well, if you're familiar with Scripture and you even know stories of saints of old, it's, it's few things are so richly motivating to our life of prayer as Christ's promise of what he has told us he's going to do, of what he has reminded us he will do. So they're prepared through prayer, but we see now in the rest of the text it is occupied with their preparation with leaders. Because you may have had times in your own prayer life, haven't you, when you know, you're praying patiently and you're praying diligently. It seems as though you know, the Spirit is just bringing all of these thoughts to mind. The Lord is impressing upon you certain truths, reminding you of His Word. And it seems almost in that prayer meeting, Peter, who's clearly the leader of these apostles at the moment, something has been summoned into his mind. 120 people gathered. They've been praying. And look what he says in verse 16 and 17. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted in this ministry, his share in this ministry. Have you ever experienced betrayal before? I'm sure many of you have, do do you find it hard to move on from such betrayal? I think it's common, don't you, that in the church that we often reflect on Judas Iscariot, you know, synonymous with betrayal, his betrayal of Jesus Christ. Oh, what effect would that betrayal have had on these apostles? You know, they taught with him, preached with him, walked with him ministered with him, are there in the garden with him, and then they see him kiss the Lord, and the Savior says, you would betray me with a kiss? Don't you know that such treachery, such iniquity would have caused their heart to almost fall apart in grief, that this man would have done this? But you see here, they're they're moving on, aren't they? Uh, They say, what we need, Peter recognizes, is someone to replace Judas, I want to show you a couple of things that we ought to recognize that are, are true things for our life in this brief section related to Judas. The first thing you do need to see is the possibility of falling away. Now, verse 17 is so striking, isn't it, that Judas was numbered among us. He was allotted his share in this ministry. The Lord Jesus Christ he called Judas into this band of twelve brothers. He Prayed with Judas, ate with Judas, taught Judas. You would not have expected that Judas would be someone that betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. He was counted among their number, but then he proved he really didn't belong to them. You know, could it be possible that you're in here today and you're counted among the number of God's people in a local church like ours? Sharing in the ministry of a local church like ours, and yet you truly don't belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. You might be counted among the number, but your heart hasn't been made new. You haven't experienced a new birth that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Do you know it's possible that people fall away? What you want to see also is that Judas' life shows us God's sovereignty over apparent defeat. Because isn't he telling us, Peter is in verse 16, when it says that this had to happen, Scripture had to be fulfilled by which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. 
He goes on to quote from Psalm 69 and 109 in verse 20 that his camp would be desolate and there'd be no one to dwell in it, this person who would reject the Messiah. And then Psalm 109, let he, another take his office. Peter is saying that this was according to the sovereign predestined purpose of God that Judas would betray his beloved son. I, I do hope it provides you a noticeable measure of comfort to know that God sovereignly rules over even apparent defeats to his divine plan. That he is always working to bring about his good and perfect purpose, even when it seems like his promise will now no longer come to pass. But the sovereignty of God in the moment doesn't remove, does it? This third thing you need to see related to Judas is his responsibility in the action. It tells us, doesn't he, in verse 18 and 19, this parenthetical statement about how Judas died. You know, he bought this field, he hanged himself, and evidently he was left there long enough for his body to begin to decay. But the text tells us, Luke in his own voice of a narrator says, he acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And then if you skip down to verse 25, Judas turned aside to go to his own place. So often people can understandably have a hard time reconciling these realities of God's sovereignty over all things and human responsibility. But the Bible doesn't have the problem reconciling those things because they are friendly truths in God's word. So what then do you do? Well, the apostles say we need someone new to take Judas's place. And you may know that whenever you're appointing a leader to serve Christ's people, there are a few things genuinely in your life that are so important as appointing a leader to serve Christ's people. Uh, you might know from your own Christian experience and church past that the appointment of one leader, just one, can make such a significant difference. I can tell you story upon story upon story good and bad, of one leader making such a significant difference. Even churches nearby, one leader is appointed, and within about 24 months, a split has come. Or the opposite. A leader has come, and noticeable blessing pours out upon God's people. So how are they going to go back about choosing another apostle to take Judas's spot to fill out the number from 11 to 12. You know, kids, you might even want to ask the question, why does there have to be 12 apostles? I mean, it doesn't seem like you could point to a text, could you, that there has to be 12 apostles. Why not just take the 11 faithful ones and continue on? Well, remember that in the Old Testament, God's covenant people are primarily known as the 12 tribes of Israel. And continuity in God's covenant grace is these 12 apostles signifying the new covenant church as his covenant grace continues to expand to the four corners of the world. So they do actually need a 12th apostle. And you'll see the criteria comes, verse 21 and 22. So one of the men who have accompanied us, Peter says, during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, be beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Uh, it's helpful to note if this uh, kind of application is useful to you, that it's clearly telling us isn't here in Acts chapter 1. There's no continuing office of apostleship. Only those who are with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry, with him to the end, eyewitnesses to his resurrection, could be considered 
to meet the criteria of, of being apostle. And notice the candidates, verse 23, they put forward two. Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. Now, if you read verse 23, and you just kind of forgot about the surrounding context, it almost seems as though Luke is signaling for you that this man named Joseph, I mean, he's the real candidate, right? I mean, he's got three names there, Hebrew name, a Latin name, names that mean son of the Sabbath, names that mean righteousness and injustice. He seems like the prime candidate, this man named Joseph. Then there's Matthias over there. And it's true, if you know the rest of the New Testament, the only time Matthias' name is mentioned is in our passage here. And it's an encouragement, isn't it, that God uses ordinary people to advance his purposes, people that in the grand sweep of history are largely and frankly necessarily forgettable as they carry God's purposes to the end of the world. So you see the confirmation, don't you, in verse 26, they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. That practice of casting lots, it was a normal and even a biblical Old Testament practice from Proverbs 16.33, recognizing with the casting of lots, it's God's sovereign choice that selects what the lot actually falls on or on whom the lot falls. But it's necessary to know it's the last time in Scripture that anyone's casting a lot to make a decision. Soon the Spirit, of course, is going to be poured out on God's people. Then throughout the rest of the book of Acts, what do we see but the Spirit guiding God's people in the decisions that they make and the leaders that they appoint. They're prepared through prayer. They're prepared with leaders. Christ is preparing His people for the coming Pentecost. You know, one of those sentences that has stuck with me in various years of reading things related to prayer came from a lecture, is really what it was, an address that Spurgeon gave to his church. Uh, it was titled, Only a Prayer Meeting. And I love, perhaps you might be like me, there, there are things that tend to maybe uniquely stir you up to the practice of prayer, to devotion in prayer. And one thing that's always served that purpose is me is reading old accounts of, of prayer meetings or, as I mentioned, even revival that comes through a prayer, and he has a book that's subsequently been published with the title of this one address called Only a Prayer Meeting. He begins this address by talking about how there are people in his church that were decrying the, the regular gathering of hundreds of people there at the Metropolitan Tabernacle as, quote, only a prayer meeting. In other words, kids, you might think of as no big deal. Well, he goes on to say, how could we expect a blessing if we were too idle to ask for it? And the sentence that just kind of grabbed my attention and it might yours today as well says, How could we look for Pentecost if we never met with one accord in one place to wait upon the Lord in prayer? I want us to learn a few final lessons here as we begin to conclude from this preparation of God's people for the coming of Pentecost. And the first of which is that the waiting community is a praying community. You might know your history of Christ's people well enough to know that there's no true, spiritual, sovereign, supernatural awakening of sinners unto faith without that harvest field being plowed up through the work of prayer. Do you wonder why far too many isn't it so true of, 
of churches even near us, in our county, in our metroplex, don't know the power of God's sovereign supernatural spirit bringing people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. They haven't tasted salvation, seen or observed it in perhaps years. I know many decades it's been true. But then you ask, well, when have you last pleaded with God for such work? And they would say, I don't know. You do not have because you do not ask. What we're going to see throughout Acts in a variety of different ways that ought to challenge us, that ought to convict us, is when the gospel is going forth. When Christ is subduing the nations to himself, it seems, carried along the winds of this devotion among God's people to gather together in prayer. When was the last time you gathered with God's people in prayer? Isn't it true that far too many of our churches today don't ever have gatherings of God's people for prayer? A waiting community is a praying community. The second thing I want you to see is that a waiting community is often a peaceful community. Uh, I want you to know it's not always a peaceful community. We probably know that experientially, don't we? But uh, you almost might want to think about uh, this scene before us as the calm before the storm. If you know the subsequent realities of Acts, what's getting ready to come to God's people? The Holy Spirit. But then when it comes after they're filled with the Holy Spirit, persecution, suffering, opposition for most of these men, martyrdom for their witnessing unto Jesus Christ, And here is God, in a calm, peaceful way, preparing them, strengthening them, equipping them for what's about ready to come. So it's right for us to think, even in our own Christian life, that it's not always true, isn't it? It's not always true that a calm season, a peaceful season, will bring forth a season of difficulty. But it's often that way. Uh, You might be in that kind of calm, peaceful season right now, and I want to encourage you not to waste it. That you can, by God's ordinary means of grace, through the work of His Word and Spirit, you might find your soul strengthened, deepened, built up, so that if suffering does come, surprisingly and even tragically, you might be ready to say with blessed Job, you, you give and take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a praying community, isn't it? It's a peaceful community. And we might say also, finally, uh, the waiting community is a provided for community. Let's look again at what the, the prayer of the people, the words of Peter, are directing our attention to in the passage, verse 24. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen. You see, the divine, sovereign prerogative belongs to the Savior. You know who it's supposed to be, Joseph or Matthias. You know, O Lord, what we need. You understand the depths of our heart. You can provide for what we need. And certainly for some of you in here today, it ought to be a striking, even terrifying reality to know that Jesus Christ sees your heart. He knows the hearts of all. And what your heart deserves is is judgment, wrath for the sins that you have committed. He knows what you need, though. Forgiveness and salvation. Of those very sins, gospel provision that's found in a sovereign Savior named Jesus Christ alone. So this is where we are, aren't we, at the end of Acts chapter 1. 120 people in a prayer meeting waiting upon the Spirit to fall. Certainly prepared for Pentecost. Let's pray together.
Father, we do thank you that your mercy and grace belongs to us in Jesus Christ. And we ask that by your word and by your spirit and according to your sovereign provision in Jesus Christ, that you would meet whatever we need from you this day, that we might render unto you the praise that is due your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together.